Labor and Love, leading off with uh, Linda Tillery. Welcome. Walk with the rich, walk with the poor, learn from each other, that's what love is for. Don't you let
artillery with the uh, don't they drag your spirits down. This is Labor and Love on Mutiny Radio, just radio for the pain and beyond. We're leading off today and we're going to follow up with some more women's music and spoken word. This is International Women's Month. Hope you're celebrating it with the woman in your life. Here's another woman singing her lament. Lou Harris, um, working girl. She uh, came to LA to break into TV and she ends up sweeping out a warehouse uh, in LA. But it's all right. 
Emmylou Harris there. This is Labor and Love, the show where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, another person worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table that is, you're probably on the menu. And never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. This is 2781 21st Street Radio Cafe, where uh, we've got a community art center. Just finished off a big comedy with performers from all over the country and uh, it was a success this is labor and love and this is mutiny radio social justice radio the bay and beyond of course by Billie Holiday. The song created a sensation in 1939 when she sang it at a New York supper
here is a strange and Beautiful Strange Fruit by Billie Holiday. This is Labor and Love, and this show, as always, is dedicated to the 350 workers in the United States and the 2,500 workers who will die worldwide today because of job-related conditions. What do we got on today's show? One of the real, pivotal, seminal, watershed events in American labor history was the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, which this coming week we're celebrating an anniversary, March 25th, 19. 09, a Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. Bessie Smith. We'll hear from Bessie and Francesca Kresklach asks, I hope I'm saying your name right. Why weren't the people in Oregon treated like other quote-unquote terrorists? Why weren't they even called terrorists? We've got Spain's women, two, two stories by the late, great Spain Rodriguez about the women in his life, uh, one historic figure. So today we're celebrating the voices of working women. And here's Joni Mitchell.
Joni Mitchell with her classic, Both Sides Now. Um, our starting lineup this week was uh, pretty impressive. We had uh, Linda Tillery leading off, and then we had uh, Amy Lou Harris playing some rock and roll, a working woman. Man just left. You're stuck in L.A., thousands of miles from your home. But it's all right because it's midnight. And I got two more bottles of wine. And then we had Joni Mitchell with both sides now. Billie Holiday before her with Strange Fruit. One of the first protest songs from the world of entertainment that really got a lot of attention. Uh, the words to the to the song were written by a school teacher, a New York school teacher, who when he read of a lynching in the South, sat down and wrote this poem and it was put to music and Billie Holiday, who was riding high at that time, who was one of the most renowned jazz singers, still probably the most renowned woman. Um, when she sang this song, uh, it created a lot of trouble for her. Um, Let's see what, what else we got. We've got uh, the Wynn Labor Report coming up. 
what's going on all around you. Let's see here. And then we'll follow that up with the World Labor Report. When we can review. comes crashing down. The AFL-CIO Facebook and Twitter ads are just one element of a broader effort against Trump. A door-to-door targeted campaign to undermine Trump is also being launched in Ohio, Pennsylvania, and other key battleground states in the presidential election. Home care worker Arthita Peters wants presidential candidates to come get her vote. Arthita and other workers in the Ohio Fight for 15 movement are making sure candidates know that 2.4 million workers in Ohio make less than $15 an hour, and those workers want a presidential candidate who endorses a $15 minimum wage and union rights. Here in Cleveland, Ohio, we are rallying home care workers, fast food workers, anybody that is receiving minimum wages, their pay, and we're standing united to let our politicians know that the wages are too low, we can't feed our families. Peters backs the Fight for 15 voter agenda, higher pay, union rights, and comprehensive immigration reform. SEIU, the main union backing Fight for 15, is endorsing Hillary Clinton, but Bernie Sanders is the only candidate to endorse a $15 minimum wage. Clinton supports $12. Peters says for workers out there trying to make it on these wages, $15 is their bottom line. We're holding out for $15. That is our base minimum. We feel like that that would better our lives. If they increase the minimum wage to $12 an hour, I would ask, when do we get to 15 If they give us $12 an hour today, we're still playing catch-up. Peters wants every politician on both sides of the aisle to know they'll only get her vote if they support $15 an hour and union rights. 1,200 nurses began a one-week strike Tuesday morning at Kaiser Los Angeles Medical Center. The nurses who joined the California Nurses Association last summer are striking over working conditions and not having a contract. Over the last six years, Karen Chan is the union's chief bargaining representative. The nurses are really concerned that over the last six years, they've seen a steady decline of the conditions and resources available for the nurses to do their jobs adequately and take care of the patients properly. The Federal Railroad Administration this week unveiled new proposed regulations mandating at least two crew members on most of the nation's freight and passenger trains. Joanne Powers reports. Unsurprisingly, the American Association of Railroads immediately opposed the requirement, insisting that new technology makes one operator sufficient. Labor unions and safety advocates, however, applauded the long-awaited proposal with some reservations. Ron Kamenko is General Secretary of Railroad Workers United. It sounds promising that the final rule hopefully will outlaw single-employee train crews in the majority of cases. Workers Independent News provided by Diversified Media Enterprises. I'm Doug Cunningham. That was our uh, nationwide news, uh, labor actions and campaigns that are going on right now. And they're happening all around the world. Here's our World Labor Report from Radio Labor. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, March 18th, 2016. I'm Mark Belanger. 
In the report this week, 130 union activists fight for women's rights at the 60th session of the UN Status of Women Commission. An ILO report shows that 60 million domestic workers lack social protection benefits. Another country adopts a new international law which bans slave labor. And the Labor Start report on union events around the world. This is Radio Labor. The 60th session of the UN Commission on the Status of Women has started in New York. 150 women union leaders from 34 countries are attending the session, which will be held March 14th to 24th. Informally called CSW60, the session's major theme is women's empowerment and its link to sustainable development. The theme is tied to the UN Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, which were adopted last year to guide the organization until 2030. A secondary theme of the CSW session is the elimination and prevention of all forms of violence against women and girls. In keeping with this theme, the labor activists held a side conference on violence against women and girls. It was organized by the Australian Council of Trade Unions and the Canadian Labor Congress, the CLC. Barb Byers is the secretary treasurer of the CLC. Every year this commission is held, we look at different subjects. And why is it important that we're here? Well, first off, we're part of a global labor movement and we need to bring our voices to that larger discussion. Why would a woman be concerned about us being here? Well, it's because we share a lot of issues. The struggle for equal pay for work of equal value is a struggle in Canada, but it's a struggle other places. It's also been something where they've had great victories. The struggle for childcare, the fight against violence against women is also a struggle throughout the world. We can learn from each other, we can provide information, but we can also put pressure on our government and on all governments. There are about 67 million domestic workers in the world. Most of them do not have any social protection benefits. Radio Labor senior correspondent Seamary Ainsborough has a report. UN's International Labor Organization, the ILO, has released a report showing that 60 million of the world's 67 million domestic workers still do not have access to any kind of social security coverage, such as pensions or unemployment benefits. The ILO is the UN organization focused on matters of work in the world. Its Convention 189 on domestic work, if adopted by a country, would provide domestic workers with the same rights and benefits as any other worker in the country. Myrtle Whitbuy is the president of the International Domestic Workers Federation. I think the convention is becoming a strong weapon and it's also becoming a negotiation weapon. At the same time, it's also becoming a capacity building weapon because what you're doing now, when you go out there and speak to domestic workers, you don't just speak to them about the labor laws, you're trying to explain to them what is Convention 189. Of course, you will find many domestic workers, they don't even know what you're talking about. But when you talk to them about labor laws and then you said that is Convention 189. So I I think that the Convention 189 has become a strong instrument, it has become a strong tool, and it's also give voice to our voices. The ILO report emphasized the plight of workers who migrate in order to do domestic work. These workers, some 12 million worldwide, often face even greater discrimination. Some of the countries which do provide social security coverage to domestic workers 
specifically exclude workers who have migrated to the country. This is Seamarie Ainsborough reporting for Radio Labour. Mauritania has joined Niger, Norway, and the UK in adopting a new international law against forced labor, slavery. Mauritania is one of the countries most affected by slavery, with more than 300,000 people enslaved. The law is an update called a protocol to ILO Convention 29 on forced labor. The ILO is the International Labor Organization, which is the UN-specialized agency focused on matters of work in the world. The protocol was adopted by the ILO in 2014. Beat Andres is the head of the ILO's special action program to combat forced labor. According to our most recent count, there are at least 21 million men, women and children in forced labor and they generate uh, about 150 billion US dollars of illicit profits every year. Those numbers are indeed very shocking. Forced labor trafficking affects every country, every region of the world and it's time to take action. One of the countries which has not adopted the protocol but is practicing forced labor is Qatar. Qatar is a small but very rich Gulf state which is preparing for the 2022 World Cup of football. It is using millions of migrant workers to help build the facilities for the games. One of the labor organizations which has been at the forefront of the fight against forced labor is the International Trade Union Confederation. The ITUC is the organization which represents national labor centers at the world level. Sharon Burrow is the General Secretary of the ITUC. She was asked about the ILO protocol against forced labor and Qatar. With more than 20 million workers in forced labor, in modern day slavery, then this is a tool we can use to eliminate the worst oppression of workers around the world. We'll want uh, governments to ratify it. We'll actually uh, ask our affiliates to join the fight to take it to an even higher level as we seek to eliminate modern-day slavery or forced labour. We've been fighting against countries like Qatar, where workers are owned by another individual in 2014. They are dependent on an employer for a contract that they have no control over. They're forced to pay illegal fees often when they leave their countries. They end up in destinations like Qatar where they see their contracts torn up. They're forced to live in squalor. They work extraordinary long hours in oppressive conditions in the heat, often with no water, on very poor quality food. And then when it all gets too much and they uh, want to leave, they find themselves trapped in Qatar because the same individual owns their exit visa. It's not acceptable. Now here with his report about union events around the world is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. Here's a small sample of the more than 2,100 stories our volunteers collected last week. Our top stories section included links to news about the victory won by Palestinian teachers in their month-long strike, public sector workers who blockaded the legislature in Bermuda for nine hours to press their anti-austerity demands, and the struggle of smelter workers in Iceland against union-busting tactics by global miner Rio Tinto. We had news of strikes and lockouts in dozens of countries. Here are just a few highlights. Auto rickshaw drivers in Bangladesh parked their taxis for a day to demand a reduction in the rates they pay to the owners of their vehicles. A solid waste collector strike continued in South Africa. 
American rail transport workers walked and won a wage dispute. Factory workers and miners in Georgia won victories in their strikes last week. Cambodian construction workers struck over wages, safety, and job security. The long-running blood collection service strike in Canada over reasonable work schedules continued. And in India, the long-running auto workers strike was attracting the solidarity of dozens of unions as they prepared a massive demonstration in support of the strike next week. Our top working women's stories included coverage of the union campaign against the abuse of domestic workers in Hong Kong, the use of young women as bonded labor in Indian factories, and a new Canadian law that gives victims of domestic violence paid leave from work. Our health and safety newswire carried stories to hundreds of union websites around the world about the new pilot health reporting rules resulting from the German wing's suicide crash in France more minor deaths in Pakistan, and the push for health and safety whistleblower protection in the United States. Currently, Labor Start is running six online actions. Take just a few seconds out of your day and join thousands of trade unionists around the world in helping to make workers' lives better, or even to help save those lives. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. And that's it. International labor news you can use. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. Here, here for global solidarity. Radio Labor World Report. Remember, all over the world, people are standing up and saying enough is enough. They're only alone when you don't stand up. And if you don't stand up, you'll be counted as standing up for sitting down. But remember, not to choose is to choose. Talk about a big... um, a big victory. Let's see... uh, The Cochambaba Bamba, I hope I'm saying that correctly. The Cochabamba, Cochabamba Water Wars. Ten years ago this month, the Bolivian city of Cochabamba was the center of an epic fight. This uh, fight was went into making the the Hasta la Lluvia, a movie with. Uh, Uh, Gael Bernal. Okay. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. We're broadcasting from the Bolivian town of Tiquipaya, just outside of Cochabamba, Bolivia. Today marks the start of the World People Summit on Climate Change and Rights of Mother Earth. We'll be covering the summit all week. But right now, we return to our coverage of the 10th anniversary of the water wars in Cochabamba. Hundreds of people through this week have been marking this decade anniversary. On Sunday, I met up with Marcela Oliveira. She served as the key international liaison for the Coalition for the Defense of Water and Life. Her brother, Oscar Oliveira, led the coalition. 
If the government doesn't want the water company to leave the country, the people will throw them out. town square where it all began 10 years ago here in Cochabamba, Bolivia. I'm with Marcela Oliveira. She was here when the battle against the privatization of water began. And Marcela, it all began with this banner? Uh, yeah, that banner was hanged there um, when the conflict started. What does it say? It says the water is ours, damn it. The water is ours, damn it? Yeah. And uh, we tried to put the word carajo because it was a strong way to say, because they didn't understand. We were telling them all the time what water meant to us, and they didn't understand. So that was the strong way to tell them we, we are not going to step back in our demands. Well, it started with the, with the campesinos. Uh, the campesinos were the first ones that realized that the government was trying to impose, is trying to pass a law that will affect their rights about water. So they were the first ones that came to the city and they told us this is going to happen if we let um, this law to pass. They are going to privatize our water sources, they are going to privatize our um, the wells that the communities own, they are going to privatize the water system in the city, so this law is going to affect all of, that, all of us. They knocked the doors of the factory workers, the Federation of Factory Workers, because they were the ones that were giving sort of a political line um, in the city. You know, the, now they were doing a job for several years denouncing what was happening in the factories. So they came here and they found the workers that wanted to help in this. But also they found a very important group of, uh, of what I would say academics, intellectuals, that could really read the law and understand how this will affect the people in the future. So these were the main groups that got together here. Your brother, Oscar Oliveira, who also became, if there was one face of this movement, it was certainly his. He was in the factory, he was among the factory workers? Yeah, he was in that time the leader of the Federation of Factory Workers. Uh, the movement themselves didn't call them leaders of the movement. We called them spokespersons. Uh, and they, there were also several um, levels of organization. So we, for example, knew if they were going to put them in jail to the first level that were the spokespersons, there was another level that was going to take over uh, the leadership of the movement. So there were several, the coordinador was organized in several levels. How did Bechtel come to Bolivia? Well, the government did um, call for a concession um, for um, an open, um, they sent an open invitation to companies to come to the country. Uh, I, uh, three, as far as I know, three companies present, uh, present their uh, papers, but two back up afterwards. Bechtel was the one that stayed, it was a consortium actually. There were some um, local uh, businessmen that participated in this consortium. Um, and they decided to take over uh, the water system. Uh, the signature of that agreement was actually in this building in front of us. Uh, and uh, when they signed that, um, that agreement, there was a small group of protesters in these stores. Uh, and Banzer, who was the president at that time, had been the longtime dictator before yes. he was elected. Exactly. 
when he hear the people protesting outside because people does that with fireworks he said oh i am accustomed to hear that kind of music in the background and he didn't think that the music will be really loud several months later. The first mobilizations against the, um, this, the privatization of the water system and this law uh, started to happen in November, December from 1999. Uh, they were very small, sporadic, but uh, they were growing. This is um, when the Battle of Seattle took place, actually. <laughs> I think we, we, at that time, we didn't realize that this was happening at the other part of the world. So it's good to see how later those struggles connected and both were successful. Uh, but that was in 1999. In January, uh, there were still protests. We shut down the city for several days. The officials from the government came here to negotiate. Nothing, no result happened uh, from the negotiations until February. Uh, and 4th of February, we called to the people to a mobilization here. We, we call it La Toma de la Plaza. That was the takeover of the plaza. Uh, for us, that was like a party. It was going to be a party because it was going to be the meeting of the people from the fields, the countryside, coming here and meeting the people from the city because it was a demand of the people from the countryside and a demand from the city. So we planned to do this with music. Um, several groups were hired and we, it was going to be really a party. And we designed the things the way that we are going to come together here from the four points of the city. Uh, one was in, the direc in that direction, the other came, the Cocaleros came from the, the one bridge. Uh, there was the neighbors from the south came from the south. Uh, there were the Federation of Factory Workers, all the workers came from a plaza near here. So it was all getting together here in one, one, at, at one time. Uh, the government said that that wasn't going to be allowed to happen. Uh, several days before this was going to happen, they sent um, policemen and cars and, and motorcycles that were surrounding the city trying to scare the people. And the actual day of the mobilization, they didn't let the people walk even 10 meters and they start to shoot them with the gases. Many of us, I'm, I'm sure, went back to our houses and we saw on the TV what was happening in the morning and what was still going on. We said this cannot happen. They were beating women, they were beating children, they were throwing gases to, to people. So we stood up and we went to the streets that afternoon and many people from the city that wasn't being part of the mobilization suddenly joined and, and we were were hundreds and hundreds of people trying to take the plaza because we would say the plaza is ours why we're not gonna take it and it was more than a, a battle um, to get something it was a battle to occupy physically a space that we consider was ours and we had the right to have this space uh, that didn't happen for one day they it was awful because they um, through rubber bullets to people, there were many bonded. Uh, and something would, that we didn't expect it is that the next day, it, people will mobilize again for the same thing. We thought, oh, it's over, it's night, everybody went home, nothing is going to happen. But no, next day, the cocaleros that were staying here, they came from the, from the field, they came from Chapare. Led by they Eva were, Morales. Exactly, they were the ones that took over again the streets and took, tried to take over the plaza again. And that inspired to other people, the students and neighborhoods, and we all came here that Saturday 
and we took the plaza finally and it was a huge victory I think because uh, we could agree with the government, we signed an agreement with the government and they froze the water bills and created a commission to negotiate with Coordinadora the terms of the contract with Bechtel. At some point in March, when we get to March, we realized the government wasn't going to do anything and they was... They okay, that was... Um, <clears throat> Marcela Oliveira talking about a campaign now 15, 15, 16 years ago to preserve water rights for the people in this town in Bolivia, Cochabamba, a great victory for the local people. Now, you understand? Capitalists want your water. He wants to sell you your water. In a lot of places in the world, uh, Water is sold. I mean, your, your survival water. And we noticed the battle over water in Flint, Michigan, where the governor of the state, the governor of the state, appointed somebody who switched water over to a dirty, polluted water supply. And for two years, the kids in Flint, Michigan, and the adults have been ingesting lead at very dangerous levels. Amazing. Here's a story about, uh, let's see, women in Mexico. Now there was a, on Mexican TV, uh, on Spanish TV, there was a, an article, a feature about women in, I believe, Guerrero State joining together in a gun club and carrying guns to offset the harassment and the out-and-out out, uh, violation of their space by men. Here's some women in Mexico who are taking another approach. This is women in Mexico City. Talk to me as if you're going to rape me. Vamos caminando por la calle cuando un acosador nos a cosa de cualquier manera que puede ser. Man, I was admiring the pretty girl. Oh, really? Corremos, esa persona, tomamos las pistolas de confeti, damos un disparo, se encienden las bocinas y cantamos sexista punk. Nosotras tenemos que responder y si en esa respuesta podemos incitar a más mujeres a que lo hagan es como el ideal recomendamos que sea divertido Have y que no te quedes con la sensación de la violencia que acabas de sentir para que tú te vayas tranquila y sepas que puedes seguir teniendo un día increíble definitivamente no creemos que vamos a cambiar el mundo pero con toda certeza sabemos que ha cambiado el nuestro
These are the daughters of violence. They don't act as if nothing happened and they certainly don't try to get away from the men who harass them. Instead, they confront them on the streets of Mexico City with confetti guns and feminist punk rock. Reminds me of uh, Pussy Riot, the Russian feminist punk group. Not only does it empower these women to move on with their days knowing they have not been ruled by fear, but it's also a good way to make the catcallers realize how their behavior affects the women at the receiving end of their comments. Street harassment is a real issue for millions of women all over the world. If a bunch of confettis and some music can make them feel safer and help them take back the power over their own bodies, we're all for it. Okay, so the daughters of violence. As promised, Bessie Smith, nobody knows you when you're down and out. Get 
Bessie Smith singing, Nobody Wants You When You're Down and Out. This is Labor and Love, and it's uh, close to the 11 o'clock hour. Going to play a couple of PSAs here, and we'll get on to the other side of our show, where we'll uh, talk about... um, Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. We'll have uh, Chess Cloth, Francesca. We'll uh, talk about some more labor history things that happened today. And I want to read a couple of stories by Spain Rodriguez. But right now, public service. Flex Your Rights, or FLEX, is a 501c3 educational nonprofit launched in 2002. As a civil liberties organization, it is focused on improving the constitutional literacy of all Americans. To accomplish this, FLEX collects and distributes the most trustworthy and practical Know Your Rights media content in the universe. For more information, go to flexyourrights.org. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco. The National Lawyers Guild is dedicated to the need for basic change in the structure of our political and economic systems. They seek to unite lawyers, law students, legal workers, and jailhouse lawyers of America to function as an effective political and social force in the service of the people, to the end that human rights shall be regarded as more sacred than mere property interests. For more information about your legal rights, how to obtain legal assistance, or to donate, please contact the National Lawyers Guild at nlgsg.org. That's nlgsg.org. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio. Planned Parenthood is a trusted healthcare provider, an informed educator, a passionate advocate, and a global partner helping similar organizations around the world. Planned Parenthood delivers vital reproductive healthcare, sex education, and information to millions of women, men, and young people worldwide. For nearly 100 years, Planned Parenthood has promoted a common sense approach to women's health and well-being based on respect for each individual's rights to make informed, independent decisions about health, sex, and family planning. Please visit PlannedParenthood.org. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco. Root Division is a visual arts nonprofit that connects creativity back now our background music today is uh, the Miles Davis Orchestra here's Barbara Dane crops are in and the peach trees are ready Oranges are piled 
Christodoms. Well, you're flying them back to the Mexican border to pay all their money to wait back again. Goodbye to you, one, and goodbye, Rosalita. Goodbye, me amigo, Jesus and Maria. Have a name when you fly the big airplane, and all they will call you is just deportee. My father's own father, he waded that river. Well, it took all the money that he made. My sisters and brothers came working the fruit tree, and they rode in the truck till it took down and died. And goodbye to you, Juan. Goodbye, Rosalita. And goodbye, mi amigo, Jesus and Maria. You won't have a name when you fly the big airplane. For all they will call you just deportee. Now some of us are illegal and some are not wanted. Our work contracts out. And we've got to move on. Six hundred miles to the Mexican border. They chase us like outlaws, like rufflers, like thieves. Goodbye to you, Juan, and goodbye, Rosalita. Well, we died in your hills, and we died in your desert, and we died in your valleys, and we died on your plain. We died neath your trees, and we died neath the bushes. Both sides of the river, we died. Just the same. Goodbye to you, Juan. Goodbye, Rosalita. Goodbye, mi amigo Jesus and Maria. You won't have a name when you ride the big airplane. All they will call you will be. Deportee. Well, the sky plane caught fire over Los Gatos Canyon. 
A fireball of lightning shook all our hill. Who are all those people all scattered like dry leaves? The radio says they just deportees. Is this the best way? We can grow our big orchards. Is this best way we can grow our good fruit? To fall like dry leaves and rot on your topsoil and be called by no name except forty. Downs um, homage to the Quinto Regimento, the, the 15th Regiment, who went and fought from Mexico in the uh, Civil War in Spain.
alma roja del pueblo. Venga, jaleo, jaleo, suena una ametralladora y Franco se va a paseo, y Franco se va a paseo. Se va paseo y Franco se fue a paseo y duro 40. Lila Downs with her homage to the Quinto Regimiento, the uh, Abraham Lincoln Brigade of Mexico. Uh, Lila Downs, um, daughter of Anita Sanchez, a Mixteca cabaret singer, and Alan Downs, a British-American professor of art from Minnesota. Up until her teenage years, Down said, I was embarrassed to have Indian blood. I was embarrassed my mother spoke her language in public. She uh, went to the U.S., went to college. Um, One day she was working at a store in the Mistec Mountains. A man came in to ask her to translate his son's death certificate. He had drowned trying to cross the border. That kind of politicized her. Uh, After going to college in the U.S., she came back to Oaxaca, working at her mother's auto parts store. And uh, she studied anthropology at the University of Minnesota and voice in New York. and embraced her Native American roots. Sings indeed songs in uh, a native language and uh, transformed herself really into a, a political woman, a, a singer of social significance. And then we had Barbara Dane. Barbara Dane was born in Detroit in 1927 Um, came to prominence in the late 50s as a jazz singer, very highly regarded. Uh, Bonnie Raitt said that she's always been a role model and a hero of mine musically and politically. I mean, the arc of her life so informs mine that really I can't think of anyone I admire more. In 1973, she put out her classic I Hate the Capitalist System album and uh, we took that song that she sang about the deportees from that album okay let's see what we got coming up next here 
I want to talk about the Triangle Shirt Waist Factory and this is kind of a homogenized CBS News, you know, history. This is ancient history, according to them, even though it happens all over the world. Spring Saturday, March 25th, 1911. 4.40 p.m. to be exact, nearly quitting time at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory in New York's Greenwich Village where 500 workers, mostly young Italian and Jewish women and girls, got ready to collect their pay and go home. Someone dropped a match or a cigarette, and within minutes, the factory, which occupied the top three floors of a 10-story building, became an inferno. Fire ladders, which reached only six floors, were useless the fire escape collapsed under the weight of desperate workers trying to escape. One of the doors, it would be reported, was locked. Onlookers out for a weekend stroll in nearby Washington Square Park watched in horror as women leapt to their deaths from upper story windows, some crashing through the firemen's nets, others hitting the sidewalk with a sickening thud. It's almost a mirror of what happened in 9-11. In some ways, it was the horror of the fire jumping the way they did. It was more intimate, though. You could look into their faces in their last moments, hear them hit the pavement that way, you know. In the days that followed, family members crowded into a makeshift morgue, trying, sometimes in vain, to identify those they lost among the charred remains. On that day, says researcher Michael Hirsch, all of New York was united in grief. This fire really shook people up. You know, the city was so guilt-stricken that maybe we were somehow responsible. And it, it led to all of these reforms that came afterward. Out of the ashes of the Triangle Fire came new safety and fire regulations, child labor laws, and workmen's compensation. The outpouring of support for working people galvanized the fledgling American labor movement. Frances Perkins, who witnessed the tragedy that awful day and who would go on to become FDR's Secretary of Labor, called it the day the New Deal began. Every year since then, there have been tributes and remembrances, and this year is no exception. This is the, uh, the Union Monument to the Triangle Victims. But Michael Hirsch, co-producer of an HBO documentary on the Triangle Fire, worries that memories of that day and its repercussions are fading, like the names on the graves at Mount Zion Cemetery in Queens. You used to be able to read this, but it's just melting away. And, and it's almost like a metaphor for the way we're forgetting these people and what they did for us. For the last five years, Hirsch has made it his mission to find the names of all 146 people who died in the fire that day and their stories. I, I just felt we owed it to them somehow. They, you know, we, so they lost everything. And to, for them to lose their names as well, that just seemed wrong. I always remember my dad telling us that he had an aunt who died in the fire. But that is all I remember. I Erica Lansner didn't even know her great aunt's name until she got a call from Michael Hirsch. 
and he said, would you, could you possibly be related to Fanny Lansner, who died in the Triangle Fire? So this is a picture of Fanny from the newspaper article. Erica Lansner discovered that her 21-year-old Aunt Fanny was a hero that day, saving the lives of many of her co-workers before jumping to her own death. And just to think of a 21-year-old knowing she had minutes to live and chose to put others ahead of herself is just extraordinary. I, I feel uh, actually quite proud, you know, to be her, uh, her descendant. Essie Bernstein also died in the fire. She was a relative of factory owner Max Blank, who along with his partner Isaac Harris was accused of locking the factory door. Some say to keep out union organizers after a bitter strike. Their acquittal by a jury caused outrage then and still rankles some today. In truth, though, says Michael Hirsch, the Blank family suffered too. The Blank family, they lost more people in the Triangle Fire than any other family. No one really knows this. It's just been kept out of the histories of this. Why? I think it's just you start to um, mention things like that. You start to humanize these people and start to tell the story differently. Susan Harris is the granddaughter of Max Blank. Growing up, she says, she knew nothing of the Triangle Fire. Her family moved to California and changed the spelling of their name. When she was a teenager, she came across a book and a name that looked familiar. I remember turning to my mom when I said, you know, was this Max Blank? Was this my grandfather? And she said, yes, and, but that happened a long time ago. You don't need to worry about that. She has spent the last five years remembering the fire and its victims by stitching the names of the dead onto pieces of old shirtwaist fabric and handkerchiefs. The reason I use the shirtwaist pieces is obvious because of the waste factory. And the reason I used the handkerchiefs was because of the loss and the grief. She calls them prayer flags. So many people, mm -hmm. they blame your family. Mm-hmm. For what happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I think that if I had lost, you know, my children in the fire, I would have wanted to blame someone as well. So many lives cut short that day. So many families broken. So many memories lost and found. And so much pain but also stories of courage and triumph. And that, says Michael Hirsch, is worth remembering. They didn't set out to be heroes. They weren't like soldiers on the battlefield. They wanted what we all want. They wanted families. They wanted to have a successful life here. They wanted to be Americans. And their sacrifice is the thing that really motivated people to start thinking about doing things differently in this country. So in a way, they are kind of heroes. Uh, I, I look at them that way. That was uh, CBS News remembering the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. <clears throat> As usual, by just aiming to get the essentials, they missed the essentials. There had been a bitter strike uh, two years earlier where Shirtwaist and other clothing factory workers went on strike in New York City and did win several concessions from their employers 
including uh, safety regulations. These two owners, Blanc and Harris, who the guy is talking about humanizing, <laughs> would not sign that agreement and remained uh, relentlessly anti-union. And yes, the doors were closed and 146 young women died, uh, mostly young women and some men too. And uh, an eyewitness remembers the sickening sound of their bodies hitting the pavement. We have to remember we're at war. Okay, we're at war. Um, these people will take as many, as much from us as they can. Blanc and Harris were never fined. They went to trial and were exonerated. They have no, they had no responsibility. They said they were immigrants, and if all the immigrants could work hard, they would be able to succeed in America. Which begs the fact: if they all worked hard and succeeded and became owners who would do the work? Good question. Here's uh, Dale LaDuke. Triangle shirt place.
shift when the fire broke out the exits are locked she heard girls shout looking down from her window she saw her friend Bessie there she smiled a sad smile then stepped into that the welfare system has been disestablished. Angela Yvonne Davis, there are no targeting jobs, women. So to speak, for the women who are told that if they don't work, that's just too bad. They can only get you know, welfare for a certain period of time and then they have to find a job. Now they haven't had the opportunity to go to an institution like this. They may not have skills. Where are they gonna find a job? And if they have children, how are they going to pay for childcare in order to guarantee the conditions which will allow them to work? So what's going to happen with so many of these women? Many of them are going to have to look for alternative modes of survival since they can no longer depend on welfare. And they're going to be lured into the drug economy, the economy and sexual services, which are two of the sort of major alternative economies available to people who are not allowed to participate in the mainstream economy. And that's going to send them straight into the prison industrial complex. So if things do not change, we will be seeing ever larger numbers of women going into the prison system. So, you know, there's a reason why we're witnessing these developments. Um, and what frightens me is that people are simply letting it happen. And many of us participate in the processes that allow for the, the construction of ever more prisons. We vote in favor of the prison bonds. We vote for 
three strikes and you're out um, laws. And we don't ask ourselves, why? You know, suddenly in the last, say, 15 years or so, you know, why this incredible increase in the need for prisons? Why this focus on crime? Well, we're surrounded by crime. You know, most of us are extremely afraid of crime, right? Am I right? I mean, we're surrounded by it. Um, and I'm not going to suggest that there isn't real crime that is being... There's a lot of real crime, and not only the people who are, are uh, represented as criminals are the ones responsible for that crime. I mean, we can talk about corporate crime as well. You know, we can talk about crimes against the environment that will affect generations to come. But of course, these people, these people generally only pay fines if they do that, right? Uh, they're not considered criminal. But in terms of the kind of crime that is usually referred to when um, the specter of crime is evoked, um, there hasn't been a great deal of increase in that. Perhaps among young people, that's the, the one area where there's been a, 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 a rise, a significant rise in um, that kind of uh, behavior, violent behavior. But in general, what we've seen is a rise in the representations of crime and violence on television, in the movies. We're surrounded by it. And we have been taught how to fear crime in a way that doesn't really speak to the objective threat of crime, but speaks to other fears, I think. It speaks to, to fears that, that, that we all have but have no way to express. And when we're told that what we're really afraid of is crime, then we have something to attach those fears to. Angela Y. Davis, um, addressing the issues of oppression of women and uh, the fixation of the ruling people on a crime as a way to divide us. Here's Lily Tomlin's take on the FBI. One ringy dingy. Is this Mr. Hoover? Mis Mr. Jedger Hoover? Good. Then, then I have reached the party to whom I am speaking. Mr. Hoover, this is Miss Tomlin from the telephone company. It is my duty, Mr. Hoover, to discuss with you some of the abuses of your instrument. <laughs> yes, yeah, yes, it, it does sound rather un-American, doesn't it? <laughs> now then, Mr. Hoover, I have your file here before me. Oh, yes, I'm sure that you have a file on me, too. <laughs> After all, turnabout is fair play. <laughs> yes, it does sound perverted. <laughs> now, 
now then. Mr. Hoover, Mr. Hoover, I have a delicate problem. I find that you and your agents have indulged in the illegal and unfair practice of wiretapping. Wiretapping. Oh, Mr. Hoover, listening to other people's conversations. Oh, how do I know? From listening to your calls, that's how I know. Oh, no. Mr. Hoover, don't be rude. I'll make a loud noise into my mouthpiece and perhaps deafen you for life. No. Mr. Hoover, may I ask, do you have a telephone directory handy? Good. Let us turn to page VIII and recite in unison. It is a crime under both federal and state law to use a telephone for annoying or harassing purposes or to knowingly permit a phone under one's control to be used for such purposes. This includes calls in which the caller remains silent, etc., 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 etc. Oh, you do know the law, Mr. Hoover. Now, Jedgar, listen, is there anybody at your place listening in? Everybody, good. Let's get right to the nitty-gritty. There's absolutely no reason for your people to skulk about, electronically speaking. You, you can get all the information you need from us. Probably a lot more accurately, too. Good. Good, then we will be in touch. Oh, and Mr. Hoover, before you go, I must tell you how much I admire your vacuum cleaner. Hello? Mr. Hoover? Well, why do you suppose he got so huffy? I was just being complimentary. Everybody knows there's nothing like a Hoover when you're dealing with dirt. <laughs> Lily Tomlin. Uh, here's a song about the most dangerous women from Annie DeFranco and Utah Phillips. I was traveling through Illinois when I was invited to stop and sing at a Mother memorial. Mother Jones. They're in a little town of Mount Olive. Now, who of note in American history is buried in the cemetery in Mount Olive, Illinois? I'll give you a hint. It was a woman. It was the Union Miners Cemetery. Do you have it yet? Mary Harris, Mary Harris Jones, Mother Jones. It's hard for the mind to encompass a life that embraced the presidencies between Andrew Jackson and Herbert Hoover. Why, when Mother Jones was a little girl, there were people still alive who remembered the Revolutionary War. And she died on the eve of the New Deal. Her millinery shop burned down in the Chicago fire, and she had heard Abraham Lincoln speak in person. Mostly, though, Mother Jones was the miner's friend. Down in Kentucky, Tennessee, West Virginia, well, the men would be organizing the underground workers, the miners. Mother Jones had already organized their wives and led them over the snow-covered game trails down into the hollis, where, armed with mops and brooms, they drove the scabs out of the coal pits. Now, Mother Jones wasn't an organizer, she was an agitator, which meant often enough she was hated as much by the organizers as by the bosses. One time, Mother Jones was out in Colorado at the great Ludlow strike. 
Now that was a strike to enforce the eight-hour day, which the state of Colorado had made a law, but they couldn't enforce it because Rockefeller owned the militia. Now, the governor promised not to send the militia into the coal fields, but he lied, and he did. Mother Jones was in the Union Hall down there at Ludlow, and word came that the militia had entered the coal fields. Well, she leapt up, and she screamed, let's go get the sons of bitches, and she stormed out. She didn't look to see if anybody was following her. Nobody was following her. She just flounced up the road alone and confronted the militia. And that was the year that President Theodore Roosevelt called Mother Jones the most dangerous woman in America. And she was 83 years old. That's some kind of dangerous. most dangerous woman in America, an Irish grandmother, an Irish woman who lost all her kids in the Chicago fire of 1876, eventually became the best known labor organizer in the U.S., worked with the IWW, the Miners Union, led a children's march to the House of President Theodore Roosevelt to protest child labor, uh, was deeply involved in the Blair Miners' strike, tried to stop the uh, marchers from a fight with the federal troops. Maybe she thought they couldn't win. Right now, let's read a story by the great Spain Rodriguez. And Spain is writing this week about Lily Litvak, the Rose of Stalingrad. There's an air bunker during the uh, great German invasion of Russia, where the Russian army fought against 200 German divisions. Meanwhile, the Americans and British were fighting uh, between 10 and 15 in the West. The new pilots enter the command bunker. This is an aircraft, Air Force bunker in uh, close to Stalingrad during the battle. Two women arrive dressed in uniform. Shortly after they report, the commander says, tomorrow you two will fly the planes these women brought in. The next day the women watch as their planes fly off into combat without them. After being on the ground for a few days, Lily Litvak and her friend Katya Budanova confront Colonel Baranov. But Comrade Colonel, we came here to fight. 
I will tell you what I told the other two women they sent me. No man wants a woman as his wingman. But then a captain, Alexei Salmo, Sal, Salomatin, a close friend of the colonel, speaks up. Let her fly as my wingman. The next day, the formation flies over beleaguered Stalingrad. Alexis' plane suddenly drops into a deep drive. Lily follows. Images of other aircraft blur past, but she is not distracted. I'm so close, she says. I'm afraid we'll hit, but if I slow down, I might lose him. She stays right with him all through the entire maneuver. When she lands, the new pilot finds a warm reception. My regular wingman couldn't follow that maneuver, Lily, the first time he went up, Alexei said. Then he tells her about the Messerschmitt. They had drowned. But I didn't see any enemy planes. Oh, he says, I've heard of your contempt for fascists, but you won't even acknowledge their existence. As they leave the field, the horizon glows with light from Katusha rockets covering troops crossing the Volga to the last pockets holding out in the besieged city. The next day, and it shows the planes in the, in the air. After a brief moment, she loses sight of Alexei. Suddenly, over her radio, Troika, Troika, right behind you, break right. She turns right, and the Messerschmitt smashes to the ground. The plane is lying there in pieces and it says the Nazi had made a fatal error not seeing Alexei on his tail. They execute a victory roll as they pass over the field. Lily quickly gains the affection of the regiment. One of the ground crew paints a white rose on the fuselage of her aircraft. There he is, painting the white rose of Stalingrad. November 19, 1942, the Soviet army goes on the attack, trapping 330,000 Germans in the Stalingrad pocket. This is the turning point of the Second World War. There's a scene where Lily and Alexei are shaking hands Sharing the dangers of combat, the text says, Lily and Alexei find themselves drawn together. Military decorum makes it inappropriate. Makes it appropriate for the lovers to embrace before a mission. But when Lily is almost shot down, all thoughts of formality are forgotten and Lily becomes a hero to support the war effort. Gradually, the Red Air Force is gaining control of the skies as the Nazis tried desperately to relieve their surrounded troops. And Spain just has a, a sky here filled with planes on one page, four different planes. Germans begin to surrender. During a lull in the battle, Lily and her friend Katya watch Alexei in a mock dogfight with a new pilot. 
and Alexei's plane crashes. Alexei is too low. His plane doesn't clear the ground. There's the plane crashing into a hilltop. Lily's grief at Alexei Salamatin's death is turned to fury in the air. Even the enemy is aware of her. Achtung, Litvak! This guy is saying into a into a microphone. They capture a Luftwaffe pilot, and one of the Russian pilots says to him, would you like to meet the pilot who shot you down? Certainly, says the German. And in comes Lily. The German says, I do not find your little joke amusing. You are deliberately trying to humiliate me. Lily then proceeds to describe the fight precisely erasing any doubt about her participation. Later, she enters her aircraft for the last time. She's got a wounded hand. She doesn't notice the two enemy planes behind her. She is last seen in her smoking plane turning to meet her pursuers. Her body is never found. At her memorial service, the men cry openly. She had shot down 12 planes before her death. And the officers stand around in in Spain's last frame. Yes, we all loved little Blondie as a pilot and as a person. She was beautiful. Spain Rodriguez uh, tribute to one of the heroes of Stalingrad, Lily Litvak. This is Labor and Love, and we're coming to you from uh, 2781 21st Street. Uh, Mutiny Radio, Social Justice Radio for the Bay and Beyond. And remember what we tell you. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, Another person worked for a dollar they didn't get. Probably a whole lot of people to make up that dollar. Okay, shout out to all those, all my people out there. As always, this show is dedicated to the thousands of people. 3,500, I believe. 2,500. <laughs> Not much different. Who will do- lose their lives today in work related causes. And in, in the United States, 350 will lose their lives. So. This show is dedicated to you. Okay. Looking for our Kerry Miraji with the Internacional. 
Remember, if you don't have a seat at the negotiating table, you're probably on the menu. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. Okay, here's Carrie Miraji with the International. Goodbye and good work. We'll be seeing you next week. Stay tuned for flat black plastic coming right up. Tell me what food relieves insomnia, anxiety, stress, chronic brain, depression, nausea, and can induce euphoria and stimulate appetite? I'm going to guess waffles. <laughs> that is incorrect. <laughs> Actually, Alex, the food I'm talking about are cannabis-based medicinal extracts. Cannabis-based medicinal extracts? That sounds like you're smoking drugs, Ed. No, baby. There are smokeless, safe, and less expensive alternative to smoking. But can I use it to sleep? Yes, baby. Good, because I'm so excited by this that I may never sleep again. And it sounds like you, Alex, may want to check out the number 4altacalifornia.com. That's 4altacalifornia.com for a non-addictive, pharmaceutical-free alternative to smoking medical marijuana. Check them out today at number four altacalifornia.com are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts are you on a raft without a pattern 
We'll gather around me sea dogs and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Yeah, you. You look like the kind of person who has a sense of humor. Oh, uh, is the radio talking to me? No, I'm on an internet podcast. Uh, I'm talking to an internet podcast? Don't be silly. It's a one-way form of communication. But I don't want you to miss out on the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival 2016 from March 2nd through 6th. Thank you. And you don't have to. You can buy tickets now on universe.com with 24 national and international visiting comedians and 20 local hosts. You won't want to miss a thing. What if I can't be at every show? Don't worry. All shows will be available for free download at mutinyradio.fm until the internet falls apart. Oh, podcast guy. I can't wait to listen to all these great comedy shows and everything else that's cool at MutinyRadio.fm before the internet falls apart. You too won't want to miss a bit of the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival from March 2nd through 6th, 2016. Buy tickets now. Brought to you by Subliminal SF, PBR, The Eagle SF, Brainwash Cafe, Asiento, and the great people at Alta California Botanicals. Have you heard of Subliminal SF? Visual and auditory mind control. Graphic design, physical merchandise, live music promotions. Go! www.subliminalsf.com for the most amazing t-shirts you've ever seen. Graphic design for every need. And live music promotion at some of the best bars in San Francisco. That's Subliminal SF, visual and auditory mind control. Go to subliminalsf.com now. Good evening there, my friends, here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and beyond's underground 
Brown Comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere $5 every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because $5, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere $5 is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse, or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? It's a cash cock, honey. <laughs> Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shit. From time to time, I've given it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this? Someone who would create an eclectic musical environment wherein both listener and host find fulfillment. The Morning Train with J.D. Buell, Wednesday, 10 to noon on MutinyRadio.fm. Freeform radio for free minds. Did you know that compact fluorescent light bulbs use 60% less energy than regular light bulbs? And that each one saves about 300 pounds of carbon dioxide a year? If all Americans switched to CFLs, we would save more than 90 billion pounds of carbon dioxide. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Muni Radio in San Francisco.
People from all over the Bay Area come to the Lindsay Wildlife Museum to experience close encounters with live wild animals. The museum's living collection features more than 50 species of non-releasable native California animals. Visitors can see and learn about wildlife such as eagles, owls, bobcats, coyotes, reptiles, and other fascinating creatures. The museum's world-renowned Wildlife Rehabilitation Hospital treats more than 5,000 wild animals each year with the goal of returning them to their native habitat. The Lindsay Wildlife Museum is in Walnut Creek. To learn more, visit wildlife-museum.org. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco. Safe sex is more than just avoiding STIs and pregnancy, no matter what you're into. Make sure that you and those around you feel safe, comfortable, and are having a good time. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio. Meals on Wheels is dedicated to fostering independent living for San Francisco seniors by providing hot, nutritious meals delivered to their homes. They're committed to fostering independent living for as long as possible. For more information, please call Meals on Wheels at 415-920-1111. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco. Listen in to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse. This weekly podcast open mic with a live audience features the best of San Francisco's underground comedy scene. Once a month... Howdy, folks. <clears throat> this is MutinyRadio.fm, and you're listening to Flat Black Plastic. We're going to take it a little out there, so strap yourself in and get ready. Mm-hmm. 